You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Wasn't sure that this day would ever come. And uh, I just feel so grateful that the jury believed us and sent a strong message that perpetrators of sexual abuse and exploitation will be held accountable no matter how much power and privilege that they have. That was Annie Farmer after a jury found Ghislaine Maxwell guilty of sex trafficking underage girls with Jeffrey Epstein. But now that verdict is in jeopardy because a juror did not disclose a history of childhood sex abuse during jury selection. But then in several newspaper interviews after the verdict said that he used his history to convince fellow jurors to convict Maxwell. That juror went from the jury box to the witness stand this week in a hearing to decide whether Maxwell should get a new trial. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. So, Jessica, juror number 50 testified that he didn't lie deliberately when he answered no to question 48 on the juror questionnaire, which asked, have you or a friend or family member ever been the victim of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, or sexual assault? He said he was distracted by thoughts of a recent breakup. How does that explanation strike you? Well, as I understand it, he also said that he was late in the day. It was an honest mistake. And as the government argued in its brief opposing the motion for a new trial, this was a lengthy questionnaire. This was, I believe, toward the end, and it was one of multiple subparts. It's really going to come down to whether the judge found him credible and whether the judge believes his testimony that he was not intentionally withholding that information, but failed to appreciate that the question was calling for an answer with respect to his own history, or even to appreciate what the question was calling for at all because he was tired or distracted. Maxwell's lawyers argue that they didn't have the ability to question him about possible bias and that they would have tried to get him dismissed. So no matter if he did it unintentionally or intentionally, Isn't this the kind of juror that the defense should get a chance to knock off the jury? Well, if he had answered yes 
answered these questions that disclosed his relevant own history of sexual abuse, there would have been follow-up questions for him, as there were for other prospective jurors who disclosed that they had also been the victims of sexual abuse. There were other such prospective jurors, and when they disclosed that information, they were asked additional questions to inquire into whether they could be fair and impartial jurors in the case. So if this juror had given a similar response of yes, disclosing his own history of sexual abuse, those very same questions would have been asked. But it's not conclusive of the motion before the court. The court would also have to decide whether or not he could have nevertheless have been a fair and impartial juror, the very inquiry that the court would have engaged in upon his disclosure of this information. And that was the kind of information that the court was trying to elicit at the hearing on the motion for a new trial, which was essentially to ask the follow-up questions and to try to get at the very same inquiry the court would have been engaged in during the voir dire process had he answered the questions in the affirmative the first time around. He swore multiple times that his experience did not affect his ability to judge Maxwell's case impartially. But isn't it apparent that his past abuse made a difference because he essentially said it did? He told several media outlets that he raised his childhood abuse during deliberations to sway other jurors who doubted the testimony of some of the government's witnesses against Maxwell. So don't his statements to the media disprove what he said on the stand? Well, one of the challenges that the court faces in deciding this motion is that the court is precluded from considering any statements or other information about what was said during the jury deliberations in deciding the motion. So even though it's been reported in the media, what he said during the deliberations referencing his own history of sexual abuse, those statements, anything about what happened in the jury room, cannot be part of the court's inquiry at this juncture. And so instead, what the court is focused on is what is the nature of his history with sexual abuse? Is there anything about the particulars of his abuse or about essentially how he has processed and reacted to it as evidenced by how he responded during the voir dire process? Is there anything about all of that that would suggest that he was not a fair and impartial juror? So the court is really cabined in terms of what it can consider in deciding whether he is a juror who would have been struck for cause because of concerns about him being fair and impartial. The juror had told the court that he wouldn't testify at the hearing unless he got immunity. Can you draw any inferences from that? I think that that is just a product of him and his lawyer recognizing that he had potential criminal exposure based on the fact that he had given answers under oath during the voir dire process that he has subsequently realized were not true. And so there was the possibility of exposure for perjury. And so he said through his lawyer, he would assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And to overcome that assertion of the privilege, the government needed to grant him immunity, effectively saying, we will not use your testimony here in this hearing against you in a subsequent criminal prosecution. So I don't think we can infer anything from the fact that he took the fifth and was granted immunity, other than the fact that he recognized there was the possibility of criminal exposure based on his statements during the voir dire process under oath. So what is the standard that the judge will use to try to decide whether or not to grant a new trial? The ultimate standard is whether or not the judge is satisfied that this is a juror who was able to be fair and impartial in this case. 
the defense is pointing to the facts of his abuse and the fact that he did not disclose them as evidence of the fact that he was biased and could not be fair. I think the defense in its briefing also pointed to the fact that he'd given interviews to be sort of seeking out the limelight as suggesting that he was biased against Ms. Maxwell, as well as some statements he made to the media about how this was essentially a win for victims everywhere, as again, suggesting bias. The government is pointing to the fact that this was a split verdict. It was not a guilty verdict on all counts, which suggests that he, as well as all the other jurors, were careful and discerning about the evidence and that the verdict was not the product of bias on his part. They've also pointed to some of his other statements to the media about how careful he was with respect to reviewing the evidence and that he went in with an open mind and somewhat skeptical, in fact, and presumed Ms. Maxwell innocent until proven guilty. So it's really going to come down to the judge's assessment of whether or not this was a juror who was capable of being fair and impartial if he had been asked the kinds of questions during the voir dire process that he was asked at this hearing. Would the judge have excused him? Those are fundamentally the questions the court is going to be struggling with. If the court determines that he lied intentionally in order to get on the jury, that's going to be a factor that's going to weigh heavily, I think, toward a finding that he is not or was not fair and impartial. If the court determines that it was inadvertent, that would be a factor that would be significant in determining that he could have been and was fair and impartial. So whether he lied or not would just be one factor among many. It wouldn't be determinative. Well, the parties are actually in disagreement about that if you read their brief. <laughs> the government is saying that it's actually a prerequisite that the court determined that he lied intentionally under its reading of the relevant precedents in the Second Circuit. The defense takes a different view of those precedents and says that it's not a prerequisite that he have intentionally lied, but that effectively that's one factor. And so the court is, I think, as a threshold matter, perhaps going to have to resolve that question. If the court finds that he lied, perhaps the court won't have to reach that question necessarily. <laughs> I think really the court will only have to decide it if the court finds that he did not intentionally lie. Because in that case, if the government is correct in its reading of the precedent that it is a prerequisite that he have lied, right, then the court wouldn't go further in its inquiry. Does the judge consider at all the fact that the victims would have to testify again at a new trial and the length of time it took to try Maxwell. Are those considerations? They're not considerations in an immediate sense. They're not part of the legal standard that the court is going to be applying here, which is much more specific to whether or not the juror was fair and impartial. But in a sense, considerations about the impact on witnesses and concerns about finality are essentially baked into the overall standards that courts apply when considering motions for a new trial. Motions for a new trial are disfavored, in part because of the disruption to victims' lives and witnesses' lives, the idea that they would have to testify again. And so courts are instructed generally under the standards governing motions for a new trial that they should only be granted when there's essentially a manifest injustice. But then when we get to the specifics of the rationale for a motion for a new trial being based on a juror who gave false statements during voir dire, then in a sense we get a much more specific standard that's really focused on whether the juror was fair and impartial. Would you be surprised if the judge granted a new trial? It happens so rarely. It does happen so rarely. Not having been in the courtroom, it's hard to get a feel for what the witness's demeanor was like when answering these questions. I think a lot is going to turn on the judge's evaluation of the witness's credibility 
in answering these questions about why he did not give statements that were true. Because whether it's dispositive or not, whether or not he intentionally lied, it's certainly going to be a very heavy factor. If the court finds that he lied, that would tend to suggest more a motivation on his part to try to get on the jury, and that in turn suggests more of a bias toward the defendant, and therefore that he would not have been fair and impartial. Thanks for being on the show, Jessica. That's former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court handed down two decisions involving state secrets. The court reversed a win for the first war on terror detainee, Abu Zubaydah, saying the government doesn't have to turn over information about alleged CIA black sites in Poland because doing so would harm national security. In ruling for the government, the justices affirmed a sweeping assertion of the so-called state secrets privilege that allows the U.S. to continue to stay mum about the existence of black sites abroad, even though the information is widely known. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the government in its effort to limit disclosure of the surveillance of Muslim communities in Southern California. In a unanimous ruling by Justice Samuel Alito, the court said that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit got it wrong when it said that the state secrets privilege used to block information the government deems harmful to national security is totally displaced by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act's procedures. Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. So, George, tell us about the case involving the FBI. So it was a unanimous 9-0 decision uh, involving a case uh, where the FBI, FBI versus Fazaga, uh, which, again, as you correctly point out, the second decision in two days dealing with this 
state secrets doctrine, something I might add that we rarely, very rarely see, particularly in the criminal world, because if it's a state secret, the government protects the secret, first of all, by not bringing the case. So in Zubaya, that was a civil case brought by someone who had been subjected to, shall we say, enhanced interrogation techniques. Some call that torture. Um, so he said, I have a claim against the United States for torturing me, and he filed a lawsuit, and the government said, well, we can't really defend this case because to defend the case would involve the disclosure of um, top-secret classified information, state secrets, and um, uh, the court, I believe, upheld that, that claim in that case. Um, the Zaga, the, um, the case involving the internal investigation of some Muslims in Orange County, California, is a little bit more interesting because in that case, likewise, they brought a civil case. Um, that involved, by the way, a, a fascinating dispute uh, going back to 2006. And if you remember after 2001, for almost a decade, the FBI spent an enormous amount of time and resources following Muslims around. And in that case, they launched a 14-month counterterrorism operation or investigation. Uh, dealing with these uh, Muslim community in Southern California. Um, and here they relied, as they frequently do in these cases, on an informant, a guy named Craig Montea, um, and he came posing as a Muslim convert, um, and as they always do in these cases, recorded all of his conversations with everyone in the mosque, recorded license numbers, just like a, a page out of The Godfather, and turned all that information over to the to the FBI. The main difference being... Unlike the Godfather, the Muslims in Orange County weren't violating the law. They weren't doing anything other than, they say, exercising their First Amendment rights. So they brought a lawsuit that said, hey, you can't do this to us. Uh, this was an illegal surveillance because you were doing it because of our, our religious creed, not, not because we were suspected of any, any wrongdoing. And the interesting twist in this case is this: their informant, after about a year, came up clearly with nothing. And he then began to make provocative statements um, about jihad and other clearly criminal acts that so alarmed the, the Muslims in Orange County that they reported it to the FBI, kind of ironic. Um, the FBI, of course, immediately shut down their operation. Um, they parted ways, and at one point the informant then made went public saying, I had been investigating this group in, in Orange County. Uh, and in 2011, um, on the basis of the spying, the, uh, the the Muslims in Orange County uh, brought a lawsuit. So that was an interesting twist. So tell us how state secrets came up. They brought the lawsuit, and the government responded by saying to the district court, well, you need to dismiss the case because the only way we could defend this case would be to disclose state secrets. And the plaintiff said, well, unfortunately, under the uh, statute called the Foreign Surveillance Intelligence Act, or FISA, um, there's a section of that act, 1806.F, that basically, according to the plaintiffs, repeals the State Secrets Act. It supplants it, and it provides for a separate procedure for the district court to decide whether or not what otherwise would be privileged or classified information can be disclosed. So that's the case that went to the Ninth Circuit. The, the district judge dismissed the case. The Ninth Circuit said... No, that was wrong, and they reversed on the basis that FISA, they claimed, repealed the State Secrets Act. Now, that's a 
remarkable and, and unusual holding uh, that the government appealed to the Supreme Court. So I guess the justices found it remarkable as well. It was a unanimous decision. Tell us about it. So the Supreme Court decided, look, we read FISA carefully, and there's nothing in this particular section, uh, 1806F, which was cited, that repeals the State Secrets Act. Um, and they, the Alito, who is, of course, conservative and a strict constructionist, said there's nothing in that statute that repeals it even implicitly, and therefore the court, on a very narrow ground, uh, reversed the Ninth Circuit and said this case can go back to the district court. State secrets doctrine may well apply. Undoubtedly, it will. Um, and then, um, you know, there'll be further proceedings. So it was a very interesting collision between these. No one has ever had a case that I'm aware of where FISA, a very limited statute, um, in a way collided with the State Secrets Act. But you know, we may see more of these kinds of disputes. FISA, by the way, really mainly authorizes the government to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance of foreign entities, basically spies for foreign governments that are running around in the U.S. spying on our citizens are subject to FISA surveillance. Very rarely does that information ever, does the government ever attempt to enter it into a criminal case. So that's why it was an interesting decision. Since the informant went public, can they use his testimony in the lawsuit? Great question. So what the informant would testify to is undoubtedly going to be okay because the informant almost by definition would not have been told about the the classified, the state secret portion because the informant was not an FBI employee. Uh, He was, who knows what his motivation was, but he was a private citizen who the FBI then recruited to work for them. So it's possible that there could be some instructions that the FBI gave the informant that the government would claim to be a secret And the district court, of course, when that claim is made, will weigh it, balance the interest there may even be uh, what's called an in-camera ex parte hearing, which means the judge would do close to the public and decide whether or not there are any secrets. Now, the the information that's primarily going to be um, sequestered, if you will, will be why did the government target this particular Muslim community? What was the predication or basis for that investigation? And the government will claim that that information would necessarily disclose um, intelligence and or investigative or counterintelligence techniques um, that obviously they they need to keep secret because our enemies will follow this closely and could learn, oh, if you want to get away with spying in the U.S. and beat the FBI, this is how you do it. So state secrets will be adjudicated or decided by the probably the district court in this case. Um, but yes, state secrets doctrine was really revived by the Supreme Court in this instance. So I'm wondering if you look at this case together with the Zubeda case, it seems like it's going to be very difficult to sue the federal government when what's alleged is an illegal investigation, in this case, you know, an investigation that violates religious freedom. No, it's a great point. That's correct. It's a nice catch, that catch-22. And the catch-22 is you can sue the government claiming that the investigation violated your civil rights, your First Amendment rights, but you may be then denied the actual underlying evidence in the sole possession of the federal government that would enable you to prove that case. So the case will be ultimately thrown out um, for lack of evidence. And that evidence is in the hands of the government and the State Secrets Act, at least according to the government, exists to protect 
that information from being disclosed. So there's a balancing that's going to occur, uh, and uh, as it usually happens in these cases, um, the, the finger, if you will, goes on the side of the scales favoring the government, making these cases ex- extremely difficult to make. This was unanimous, whereas the other one was, the Zubeda case was splintered every which way. Why was this one so much easier? Is it just because it was narrow? Well, it was easier because, frankly, it was a narrow question of statutory interpretation. And you're right, when it's 9-0, when you have the six conservatives and three liberal justices all agreeing, then clearly they all agreed that the statute in this case, FISA, did not overrule the State Secrets Act. And Alita wrote a very short but um, very tightly reasoned opinion. Um, and, and indeed, they stressed in, the, in his decision that this was a narrow question um, about whether FISA displaced state secrets. The justice has made it clear in sending it back um, that the plaintiffs are free to litigate and free to, they can free to challenge the imposition of the State Secrets Act. So I think it was... Nine zero because the the case will continue perhaps not very long, uh, but um, I think the case involving Zubeda the the torture at the black site overseas I think that one clearly was probably going to be going to be killed by the fact that all, most of the evidence that the government would have in its possession relating to the claims would clearly be covered by state secrets and therefore uh, the government would be entitled to withhold it. Thanks, George. That's George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And don't forget to join us for the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.